June 20th, 2010, lecture discussion number three on the book of Romans. Um, uh, and this, again, is another introductory uh, lesson into Romans. It's also called the Special Father's Day Sermon. Yes, indeed, today is the Special Father's Day Sermon, because I want to keep with the revered tradition here at Cliffside of presenting a unique, contemporary, seeker-sensitive, visitor-friendly presentation on holidays that fall on Sundays. And so this is another one of those. Everybody always comes for the special Sunday sermon. So expect an added emphasis today on certain elements that especially pertain to fathers. Do you believe any of that? Oh, good. But I did. I actually tried to find a way to put it in there. For those of you, though, that missed the first two Sunday lectures on this section on Romans, this is um, and I know a lot of people are missing, and that's part of the reason why I'm trying to just gather it all up little by little, because it's summer in Alaska after all, it's solstice in Alaska, it's Father's Day, everybody is taking advantage of what this state has to offer. That's perfectly understandable. Do it without guilt. Um, but what I've done so far is mainly introduce the major fundamentals of the Book of Romans, and... and I took them all off the board, but let me just put one of the major fundamentals of the book of Romans, and that is philosophy. Paul, of course, as you know, philosophy. There it is. It's in there somewhere. Paul, as you know, would go into every city that he could, and the first thing he would do is he would go into the, uh, the places of the highest level of intellectual discussion, and he would destroy them philosophically. That's what he did. And he really... Did I even come close to spelling that right? Okay, here's how you spell philosophy. You ready? Phil. Okay. The Romans is filled with it, primarily because of uh, what's called a substance dualism. We'll get to that in a moment, but that's what's there. Also, he wants to make sure that you have an understanding of astronomy. You have an understanding of quantum physics. I can spell quantum. I did teach physics. I also taught physical education, so I'm pretty good with PHY. But all of that is the fundamentals, the major fundamentals. We introduced that a little bit in the last couple of Sundays. But uh, as we go along, the book of Romans is primarily about salvation by grace alone. I can't say that enough. Here we are, we are renting space. How much are we paying? Nothing. What a great deal. Here at Graceland. Okay. This is really New Graceland, but the book of Romans is primarily about the doctrine of grace. That's what Paul's trying to beat in. He wants to make sure that you understand the philosophy of the mind and the body and the soul and the spirit, that you understand the created things and that you understand the created things on two levels, both the smallest level and the tallest or the highest level, the most level, and you understand the power that is involved in all of that. That's what he's doing. But first and foremost, he's going to argue this. Everywhere he goes. The book of Romans is primarily about salvation by grace alone, through faith slash belief alone, in the name of Jesus Christ alone. And Paul, as I said, is arguing this everywhere he goes. The premier theologian that has ever lived. Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee. Now Paul. 
Any other teaching that is in conflict with this truth, this gospel, salvation by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, anything that's in conflict with that, this one good news, this gospel, anything, that anyone who preaches any other gospel, anyone who preaches a works-based, a human effort-based, a human law-based salvation, anything other than grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, that let that preacher be accursed. That's what the Holy Spirit had Paul write over and over again. You have any other doctrine, any other way of salvation other than grace alone, through belief, through faith in Christ alone, you are to be accursed, cast into condemnation, shunned, avoided. Never go to a church. Paul will tell you over and over again in Romans, never go around anybody who teaches that. That's how strongly this doctrine is to be held by the church. You could go to Galatians 1, 6 through 10. This is really for the Internet people who outnumber us horribly, by the way. And they know it. They've come and visited us, and they tell me things like, our coffee group that meets in the coffee house in Seattle is bigger than you guys. And I say, yeah, that's true. And I know that. I know that's the case. We have more people listening to us in Russia than come here now. It's pretty scary. But anyway, for those folks, Galatians 1, 6 through 10, Romans 4, 4, Romans 11, 5 through 8, and Romans 16, 17 through 18 will pound in grace alone, Christ alone, belief alone. Anyone who says anything else, anyone who has a works plus grace, anyone who has a works only. I had a young man after the sermon yesterday or last week come and talk to me about how many... How many teach the doctrine of grace alone? There is only one. That's Scripture. All other faiths. Here's your law side of salvation. Here's your grace side of salvation. There is only one place where grace is taught. That is Scripture. Every other... Let me put times ten to the ninth. The billions of other doctrines that are out there, the other religions, are all some kind of law or works-based system. And so Paul just beats it and beats it and beats it in and tells you anyone that gives you any indication that there is some way that you can earn your salvation should be accursed and shunned. And there you go. Romans, I'm sorry, Galatians 1, 6 through 10. And there's our first special Father's Day sermon application right there. There it is. Because what's Travis got to do now? He's got to do it twice every day. What's he got to do? Every day he's got to pound into those two daughters. Grace alone, faith in Christ alone. Every day until they come out of there knowing. And when you recognize everything else is a counterfeit but this, uh, then you are protected. That Fathers will be especially held accountable for their children knowing salvation. Look at me do it again. Salvation is by grace alone through belief faith in the blood of Jesus Christ alone. Teach your children to avoid anyone who teaches anything else. That is the message of the book of Romans. That is the message that the Holy Spirit gave to the Apostle Paul who handed it to Phoebe, who sent it to the Roman church. Filled with Gentiles, by the way, mostly. Some Jews there. Make sure you know this. 
anyone who says otherwise condemned for all eternity. So, choose your church wisely, fathers. Choose your family's church wisely. See how often now I got the Father's Day sermon in? That's what? Three times. Sit down with each child and face to face read to them Romans 4, 1 through 4. Romans 16, 17 and 18. Galatians 1, 6 through 10. It is a Father's Day assignment because what I like to call it more than anything else is beating avoidance. We will, fathers will be held accountable for what we have taught our children about the doctrine of grace. Okay, along with that, can't say it's strong enough though, along with that, the book of Romans, the Holy Spirit inspired, the God-breathed scriptures written by the Apostle Paul, formerly the Pharisee Saul, the book of Romans, Saul converted by Christ. I need to say that. Saul, Paul, Acts 9.5, gets a face-to-face Jesus Christ meeting. Pretty cool. He gets the voice in the air. He gets the blindness. He is taught personally by Christ. Galatians 1.11 through 12. So not only is he converted, he is taught by Christ. Now that puts him in a u- unique position. But anyway... The book of Romans, besides all of that, also includes the without excuse. Now, the without excuse clause is this right here. These two. The created things, the invisible that is clearly seen. The without excuse clause is the basis for the search of the created things. We are told that, the, that God is in the created things. Now, that means that we are what? A created thing. His power is holding the created things together, and it's the invisible, as it says, that is clearly seen. Romans 1:18 through 23. The power that constantly sustains and holds together and makes the things that He has made work. Mankind, because they have not searched or do not recognize the power alone, much less all the created things, will be judged and found without excuse if they say there is no God. Does that make sense? hope it does. So those who demand a special sign, please, God, hit that rock with lightning and overturn that horse trailer. And then I'll believe. He says you are without excuse. You are without excuse because he has put himself in his created things. That's why astronomy is so important to us. Because I ask this question, everybody boo as they leave. This still doesn't mean that we can't boo. Okay. Yeah. See you next week. <laughs> oh, that's right. Tell, tell your associate we'll see him. Okay. That's family. Isn't that scary, huh? You see how much respect I get. Anyway, those who demand a sign, who say that God has to see them personally like he did Paul, those who seek for signs and wonders, Christ said to the Pharisees that you're an adulterous generation that seeks a sign and a wonder. I'm going to give you Jonah, the sign of Jonah. Go study the sign of Jonah. My favorite, by the way, theologian scientist is George Washington Carver, who was so smart and extraordinary. He's a genius, maybe one of the greatest intellects ever. 
and he is also very arrogant. And he wants God to give him something that he can solve that no one else can solve because he is that smart. You should read George Washington Carver sometime. Fascinating man. And God gives him a peanut. This is there. Deal with the peanut. George Washington Carver did things that will just stun you. It's one of, one of those unique men. And he did it, by the way, without a notebook. He didn't want anybody to know what he was doing. You can't find any of his written material. He took no credit for it. He studied a peanut. He made gasoline out of a peanut. He made, he made nitroglycerin out of a peanut. He was an extraordinary man. And so I always bring him up in these kinds of days because of what he was... He, he, he just he wanted something great and he was given something small. And he found out that something great was in something small. Those who scoff because God has not performed for their sake. You see, they want God to be a, an organ grinder monkey, a dancing clown maybe. I don't know what they want, but they want God to respond when they say respond. God, you do this or I won't believe. He says you're without excuse. Those who deny his existence because he hasn't lowered himself to their satisfaction, you're without excuse. Romans 1.20 so the without excuse clause is in the book of Romans. Very important to know that. And what naturally follows that, of course, is the search of the things that are made. And that's, again, back to astronomy and quantum physics. And I asked a couple of weeks ago, how come he made so much stuff? We didn't even know it was there. No one knew it was there until recently. How much stuff did he make in the heavens? How many stars are in our galaxy, I asked a couple of weeks ago. Billions and billions of them. How many galaxies are there? Billions and billions. How come he made so much stuff? Why didn't he make? I asked this question. Have you figured it out yet? Well, how come he didn't make just the sun and the moon and the earth? And everything else dark. But he didn't. He filled it up. How big is the universe? Don't say infinite. Infinite only belongs to God, though they will tell you that it is infinite. Here is, I will draw you proportion as you, as you hear me say, that's the universe and the whiteboard is God's hand. And that's probably not being fair, because you can see it. The whiteboard is God's hand and there is the universe. That's not fair, because you can still see it. The whiteboard is God's hand and here is the universe. There. Perfect. So there you go. How big is it? It is finite, but yet to us it is massive. And he filled it with so much stuff. Why? Why didn't he just make these three and call it good? Then we would go, well, there's nothing else but us. Why did he make it so big? It's a very important question. That is one of the questions of the book of Romans, okay? And then, so after, after you get through all of that, now you're into the inner life of the cell as well. You're going smaller. You're into biogenesis, as you uh, might have remembered that film that I showed. What's going on inside a single cell, the law of reproduction, the law of life reproduction, biogenesis. All of that comes next after you do that. And then uh, finally comes Romans 1, 24 and 32. Where God says, if you can't figure out by all the stuff that I have created and how I hold it together and what I have done at the smallest level, if you can't figure out all of that and how I hold it together and how I, it all consists, how it all is in my hand, if you can't see that, then He gives you over to a debased mind. Romans 1, 24 through 32. And that is contrasted with the renewed mind. 
Romans 12, 2. So there we're, now we're working our way. When you have a renewed mind, any discussion of a renewed mind sends us into what's called substance dualism. Substance dualism, as I explained a couple of weeks ago, and we're kind of still in the introductory phase, right? Substance dualism, all it really is saying is that you are a two-component in the sense that you are a physical component and a non-physical component. You can divide that into three if you wish. You can put the soul and the spirit in the non-physical and the body in the physical. But substance dualism just says that I have a mind... And I have a brain or a body, if you will. I'll put brain because that's very common, but you could put body just as well. I have a mind and I have a brain and a body. And the mind is a different substance, a different substance than the body. It's a metaphysical, supernatural substance, and it's very different from the body. And so you have to renew. He will give you over to a debased mind, or you have to renew your mind. That is really your choice. Notice how I said that choice. The brain is a physical process. It's a physical entity. The mind is a supernatural entity. And the solution to this, and Paul will make it clear through uh, the Holy Spirit's guidance in Romans, the way you solve all of this is the phrase, don't you know you're a tabernacle? Paul says that, don't you know you're a tabernacle? And he implies what? that you don't know you're a tabernacle. And the reason that you're confused is because you don't know you're a tabernacle. What's he mean by that? You're designed like the tabernacle is designed, like the tent of Moses is designed. The solution to the mind and the brain, the mind-brain mystery, the solution to brain injuries and Alzheimer's, as you know, my mother is dying of Alzheimer's now. And we don't know how much longer she's got. We don't know if she should be fed anymore in the sense that if she eats raw or regular food, she can't control which, which column it'll go down and gets into her lungs. And so we have to put in a feeding tube. But one thing I know is that her mind is a different substance than her body. And I know that she's designed like a tabernacle. So all of this stuff has to come in. I have to deal with it a lot, and it makes me consider all the aspects of it. And so slowly but surely, I am doing what I want you to do, and that is find everybody who thinks otherwise than, don't you know that you are a mind and a body? Find everything they write and begin to tear it to pieces. As I said last week, they have a little tiny bathtub rowboat and a pea shooter, and you have an aircraft carrier, a nuclear weapon. It isn't a fair fight. If you are confused by it, it is because you have not taken the time to work yourself through it. So we'll do a lot of that. But anyway, the solution to all of it is, is don't you know, the mind-brain mystery, the solution to that, don't you know that all you have to do is study the tent of Moses and the temple of Solomon because how they are designed are the, are the temple of Ezekiel, which is a lot more fun. All, they are designed just as we are. He set it up so that you could figure out how everything works. Why are there gates to the temple? Because I got all these gates, right? I got all these ways, passages to get into where am I headed? Where am I trying to get? It's like a big maze. I go into a gate and I work my way through. I go past all this stuff and I get where? 
I get to the Holy of Holies, right? That's the way you're designed. All this information comes into you and gets into the Holy of Holies. How does it come into you? Through gates. What do you call the gates? Yeah, senses. Eyes. I get information through the eyes. How do I see anything? I'm looking at you. I see you. Some of you have aged dramatically since I saw you last. But I see you. How do I see? Sight is where? It's in the mind. I take electrical impulses and I convert them into mental images. That's how it works. That is how the temple is designed. The temple of Solomon, the temple of Ezekiel, if you will, the millennial temple, and the tent of Moses. So, that's how you solve all of this. Don't you know that you're designed just like the tabernacle and the temple? And that's where we've been, along with asking the obvious questions within Romans 1, 1 through 7. That's where we left off. We asked all the obvious questions last week. Did we answer any of the obvious questions? No. No, we didn't. We asked the Christ resurrection question. Why is that such? We have a pre-resurrection and a post-resurrection stage. The Bible is divided. Christ is divided, if you will, between a pre-resurrection and a post-resurrection. And the Bible says clearly over and over again that the resurrection is the definitive proof that he is God. And that we are saved. How is that the case? And then we have the Davidic covenant questions. And I asked you how many covenants there were. And you all answered back what? That's right. You all answered back eight. There are eight covenants. So we have to investigate what's going on in the Davidic covenant. What's the sign of the Davidic covenant? Do you remember? Do you remember? Every covenant has a sign. What's the sign of the Davidic covenant? That's not it. It is the birth of God. It is Luke one thirty five, the holy thing. The sign of the Davidic covenant is the birth of God. Okay? And then I asked, I told you, I made the comment last week that, uh, that the gospel of Christ is called good news. And it is the only good news in all of the Bible. The rest of the Bible is filled with woe and bad news. Everything is woe, everything is bad. There is nothing that is good in this earth except the gospel of Christ. All other things are polluted. And we argue over our pollution. My pollution, my sewage is better than your sewage. That's what we do. It's absolutely insane. There's only one good thing, and that is the gospel of Christ. Nothing else is called good news. Everything else is called uh, decay and corruption. Entropy, right? Okay, all else is woe. Anyway. And I, I delight, as you know, in asking the obvious questions and letting them um, accumulate and fester. It's part of my process here. It's something that I do on purpose. Don't be offended by it. Don't think I'm going to change. It works. That's why I do it. Now, let's go ahead and ask more obvious questions instead of answering any of those. I'll, 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 let me deal with the Davidic covenant just for fun. So remain calm here. Don't panic. Let's just go through the Davidic Covenant really fast. There's four promises in the Davidic Covenant. And one of the first things that Paul does in the book of Romans is give you the Davidic Covenant and say, you've got to know this. He is called the seed of David. There's four things. 
First thing is, is that the kingdom or the throne will be eternal. There's going to be a throne of David. Actually, probably I should start with the seed of David. There will be first a seed of David. A seed will come. It's probably a better order. A seed will come, and that seed, David's seed, shall never be destroyed. So David will always have a house, if you will. And if you don't want to call it a seed, call it a house. There will always be descendants of David. They will never be exterminated. What does that tell you about the nation of Israel? The nation of Israel cannot be exterminated. In spite of the greatest wishes of the Islam community, there's no possibility that you can exterminate the house of David. It will always exist. That's one of the promises of the Davidic covenant. So the seed or the line of David shall never be destroyed. The kingdom or the throne if you will, the throne that is David's throne is also promised by God to also never be destroyed. The throne will always be there. There will always be a throne for which a king of Israel will sit. It will never be destroyed. The kingdom of David, or or if you wish, Israel, will reign over the entire earth. So they will have total reign over the entire earth at some point. Israel will. And the house and the throne and the seed and the reign shall be forever. So those are the four promises of the Davidic covenant. And as I said, the sign that this will happen, the sign that proves that the Davidic covenant will occur is the holy thing is born, Luke one thirty five. the one born of the seed of David. That's what Paul means when he says, the one born of the seed of David, Romans one three. that's the sign of the Davidic covenant. Paul declares Jesus Christ to be the sign of that covenant at Romans one three, And that, of course, as you know, answers the question of the crowd of Matthew 12.22, because when Christ brought the deaf mute... Uh, the, I'm sorry, the demon out of the deaf mute. That is a Davidic sign. Do you remember me saying that to you? No one could get a demon out of a deaf mute except the seed of David. That's why the crowd, when the Pharisees went and had a deaf mute and they brought the deaf mute to Christ and he was demon possessed, the Pharisees knew that only the Messiah could bring that demon out. It is a, mess- a messianic fulfillment. You can't bring a demon out of... See, the Jewish exorcists of the time, for example, can't bring the demon out. Why not? Because you have to be able to learn his name. If he's a deaf mute, you can't communicate with him. You cannot learn the name. Only the Messiah can bring the demon out of the deaf mute. Everyone knew that. So when you read Matthew 12:22, understand that you're the only one that doesn't know what this means when you're reading Everyone that was there knew, here is a test. What do you think? They just went to the store and found this guy? They've had this guy a long time. We've got to, they probably made him a deaf mute. Waiting. Only the Messiah can bring that demon out of that deaf mute because only the Messiah would know something. What would he know? He would know who was there. And he can bring him out. Now, he doesn't... Um, he has, they, they did not know the Messiah was God, but they quickly began to figure that out. 
Anyway, that's the answer to the deaf-mute sign of Matthew 12:22. They said, could this be the son of David? When he did that, they all said, this could be the seed. This is the seed of the house of David that will reign forever as king over everything. And Paul is declaring him to be the sign of the Davidic covenant in Romans 1-3 again. So yes, Jesus Christ is the sign And Paul does something more, though. Paul, what he does is declares him to be God himself. So, there we go. There's your Davidic covenant part. Now, let's add some questions in our never-accumulating tradition of asking questions, never-ending accumulation of questions asking. Something like that. It'll make sense someday, just not today. So, here we go. Romans 1, and we are in Romans 1.8. And as I read it, you begin to say, this is where the sermon starts for those of you who were here. The rest of that was for the benefit of people that have missed to try to catch them up as quickly as we can. But while, you're, while I'm doing this, I want you to find the low-hanging fruit. Some of these questions are really obvious, and you should find them without my help. Um, I hope you can. So here we go. As I... As I uh, Read, you ask questions to yourself. First, I thank my God through Jesus. I'm giving you a chance to ask a question. That is an extraordinary doctrinal statement, by the way. Absolutely off the chart. It is not low-hanging fruit. That's one of the most complicated things ever written in Scripture. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. What's the obvious question? The low question. I'll read it again. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. How big is the world? Is that in, uh, is the faith of the Roman Christian church, which is primarily Gentiles, is that being spoken of in, say, Albuquerque? Is the whole world here mean whole world, or is it just Mesopotamia? And if it only means Mesopotamia, or the Roman basin, if you will, or the Roman empire, if you will, what does that mean with respect to the book of Revelation? There's your first easy question. And by the way, who's speaking of them? How did it get out? For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. What's the obvious question? Why is he doing that? Is he doing it for anybody else? Without ceasing, the Apostle Paul is always praying for the church in Rome. Why? Is he doing it for the Galatians? Is he doing it for the Corinthians? Is it just the Romans? And if it is just the Roman church, why is he doing it? Why is he praying for them? Immediately, ding, light should go off. Paul thinks you need prayer. Is that good news? Remember, there's no good news. Only bad news, except for the gospel of Christ. 
if I'm standing here one day and, and the Apostle Paul comes up to me and says, Coach, I think I need to pray for you without ceasing every day. I'm going, oh no. This is probably not a good day for me. It is and it isn't. He, without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. Making request, if by some means now, at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. What's the obvious question? He isn't able to come to him. Why not? Why not? What's it say? It's not God's will that he should come. He prays to come all the time. He wants to come really bad, but he's not able to come. Why can't he come? What's keeping him from coming? Who's keeping him from coming? Why is he keeping him from coming? If I got the phone call, I could just, this is how I put myself into this story all the time. I, I'm on the phone. It's the Apostle Paul. Steve, I'm praying for you all the time. I'm doing everything I can to get there, baby. But it's not God's will. I'm doing this now. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. There you go. So that you may be established. By the way, how come he can do that? Who gets to impart spiritual gifts? And the Romans knew this, by the way, and so did the Jews. They figured out who could impart spiritual gifts and what did they do to them all? They hunted them down and killed them because they wanted to stop the spiritual gift imparting. Yes. Yes, this is before. We have to get, we'll get to, yes. You have to, I haven't put the, the order of Paul into the dissertation yet, but absolutely we will have to do that so that you can keep it all straight. But he wants to give them a spiritual gift. What's the obvious question? Most of us would say, what spiritual gift? Because we're what? Yes, we're greedy little suckers and we want our stuff. But the real question is, is why does he want them to have a spiritual gift? Hey, that's the real question. That is that I may be, let's see, so that you may be established. Uh-oh. They're not established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you. Actually, many of your Bibles will have comforted by the mutual faith, both you of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. What's the obvious question? Unaware of what? Unaware of who? That I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now. That I might have some fruit among you also. What fruit is that? Just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians. Why? What's he owe them? Both to the wise and to the unwise. Now what do you ask? What's the difference? What makes somebody wise and somebody unwise? So as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. But he isn't preaching, so it isn't up to him. Again, why isn't God letting him preach in Rome? Why is he hindering him? Why did he have him write this letter and give it to Phoebe instead? What's the problem? 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel. What's the obvious question there? Who is ashamed? Why are they ashamed? What does it mean to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ? For it is the omnipotence of God. Yours might say power, but it's the same thing. It is the omnipotence of God to salvation for everyone who believes. What's the obvious question? How come it isn't for everyone? It's for everyone who believes. Why isn't everyone saved? That's a very important question. Why isn't everyone saved? Have you answered that? It's pretty easy to get saved, isn't it? Because it's what? It's grace. It's free. It has to be grace. It has to be free because it's a drop of his blood, isn't it? How expensive is a drop of his blood? There's a drop. How much does it cost to get a drop of blood? What does a drop of blood do for you? It cleanses your sins. It restores you to eternal life. It changes your body. It makes you holy. How much? A couple hundred? Could you ever earn it? You could never earn it. So it is beyond precious. It's infinite. That is why it has to be freely given because you could never earn it. Anyone that says you can earn it ultimately says that it doesn't do what he says he's going to do with it, which is give you eternal life, cleanse your sins, make you holy, make you reconciled to him, make you live forever. That's a pretty good product. You'll never see that on the home shopping network, will you? Or am I? But that's why it has to be given free. Anyone who says it's not given free says that you can earn it. And if you can earn it, then Christ isn't God. Because he's attainable. He's finite. You cannot make Christ finite. Otherwise, you strip his deity from him. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. And here is the most incredible statement in the book of Romans. The just shall live by faith. If that's all you get from me today, I want you to break it up like that the rest of your life and be like me. I'm kidding there a little bit. But I want you to break it up like that. The just shall live by faith. Okay. There's the the low-hanging fruit. Those are the questions. As I read that and asked you the questions, a little survey here, how many of you had some of those questions? Any of those questions as I went through it. You don't have to raise your hand. You can tell me afterwards. But I do need to know whether or not you are reading the questions along. It just feels funny. Is it, is it bothering anybody, the sound? It's bothering me, and I don't know why. Okay, I just need to know that you're going through the Bible constantly asking these kinds of questions, going through it, trying to figure out what the questions are as much as you can. If you get the questions, the answers come. But if you never get the questions, you never know what to ask. And there you are stuck, right? Okay, again, the several uh, obvious questions, the low-hanging fruit, as I like to say. The phrase, whole world must be defined. Who is the whole world? How is, the, how is it that the whole world knows the truth of the Roman church, which is mostly Gentile? Paul is longing to come so that he may impart some spiritual gift. Obvious question, what is the exact nature of that spiritual gift? Which gift is it? What's he trying to do with that gift? He knows they need it in order to be comforted and established. Note immediately that Paul has this power, the power to do this. When did he get this power? From whom did it come? What is the purpose of these impartings? 
<laughs> Let me talk about this really fast. The Romans figured something out. So did the Jews. The Romans figured out that Christ, that's my depiction of Christ, could give power to people, and did. And he gave it to the apostles. Okay? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and Paul. Christ gave them power. And they had the ability to give the power to somebody else. And so they created lots of people with tremendous power out there. And the Romans went around, and the Jews, the Pharisees, went around killing these. This is what Paul did. He went around killing these guys. And what would the apostles then do? They would make more power factories. And so then they would go around killing these guys. Finally, they figured out that these guys can't give the ability to give power. They can just get power. So we don't have to hunt them. Who we have to hunt? We have to hunt these guys. We got to start killing these guys. Once we kill those guys, the ability to transfer that power ends. Does that make sense? That's the apostle. Apostle gets his power and can give his power. The people who get power can't give it. So what happens eventually if I kill these? And they killed them all except John, and they put him they put him on an island with a bunch of Romans. What happened to those Romans, by the way? Those Roman soldiers guarding him. He saved everyone I'm saved. He freaked them out. That's a great story, by the way, the Apostle John. Absolutely freaked those guys out. And what did they do? They went into the Roman army and what did they do? They testified. And the entire Roman army was subject to this incredible wave of Christianity. Plus, as well, the centurion that was at the gravesite. I mean, the Roman army was transformed into a Christian army. It's an extraordinary story. And it's something that I should do for you sometime. But ultimately, if I kill all of these guys, all these guys die. Looks like I leave John. The ability to transfer power dies with them. Okay? Notice also his reason, Paul. The Roman church needs to be established and encouraged and be comforted. Why? What's coming? Paul is, uh, is Paul afraid for them? That seems to be the case. That's pretty scary. Because what does Paul have besides face-to-face instruction with Jesus Christ, who, by the way, has ascended, right? So he's not laying hands on anybody anymore. Paul, you can make the case, was his last one. Paul knows things that nobody else knows. How is it that he knows? Well, Paul is taught, as I said, face-to-face by Jesus Christ. Galatians 1.12, Paul is taken to the third heaven. That's an extraordinary thing. He is taken to the third heaven. He says, I don't know if it's my body. I don't know if it was my spirit. I don't know if it was both. I don't know how I got there, but I got there. Who does he share that with, by the way? Who else got to go to the third heaven of the apostles? That's right, John. Whenever you go to the third heaven, almost it seems that you are given a perspective that is outside of time. You're also given things that you can't tell. It's unlawful to tell them. It's great wisdom, and you have to keep quiet about it, and it's a great burden. So Paul knows what is coming 
towards the Roman church. What's coming towards the Roman church, by the way? Nero is coming. Paul knows. Every apostle found, the first question it seems that every apostle asked Christ was what? How am I going to die? And Christ did what? Told him. Paul knows Nero is coming. And he wants to give him a gift. He's got to give him something. Because he wants him to be comforted. He wants him to be able to say, hey, we're all getting massacred here. We're getting lit up. We're, we're torches in a garden party. Baked in or dipped in oil and lit on fire. Our kids are being eaten by animals. We're being massacred. Paul's got to get a gift to them. To comfort them. And he can't, he's, he's in a hurry, but he's, but he's being hindered. He knows what's coming. He wants to establish them. And they have something very, very precious. They have the truth of salvation by grace through faith. And the whole world knows they've got it. Is that good news? Yes and no. Because the whole world is not filled with people who want it. The whole world is filled with people who will kill those who have it. So the whole world knows that your church has the truth about salvation by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. The whole world knows it. And I need to get to you, and I need to establish you and comfort you. Everybody knows. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Obvious question here on Father's Day. Are you ashamed? What does it mean to be ashamed? And lastly, I, should, I skipped this out of order a little bit. Got to define Greek and barbarian, what he calls wise and unwise. Make the application. Are you a Greek or are you a barbarian? And notice that Paul owes both of them. He's in debt to both Greeks and barbarians. What's he owe them? How did he get in debt to them? How does he pay them back? Okay, that's the easy questions. That's the first layer, so to speak. It gets more tough as we, if we go back and raked it again, but I'm running out of time here. Let me look. I don't have much time. So I've got to figure out what to skip. Okay. As I said, verse 8 is incredible. This is the higher fruit, the deeper level. First, I thank my God through Jesus. Wow. Wrapped up in that is the mediatorial high priest office that Jesus Christ now performs. You have to go through Christ. You can't get to God, if you will. You can't get into the Holy of Holies until the curtain is taken down. You have to have an escort, if you will. You have to have a covering. You have to have a mediator. Uh, a mediator. You have to have somebody that, for example, that uh, Moses typified. And Christ is now in that office. And, and um, Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. It's the second of Jesus Christ's offices. His first office was prophet. His second office is now this high priest. His third office is that he will be king. 
Okay, The first two offices he's done. What's the odds that he'll do the third one? He, of course, will. All things must go through Jesus Christ, and all things do go through Jesus Christ. This is first. Notice he says first. I thank my God through Jesus Christ. You've got to know this first. This understanding of the position and the person of Jesus Christ is essential. It's primary. Next, ask why. Is he ha- why does he have to be a mediator between us and God the Father? It's everywhere. It's in the tabernacle. It's in the sacrificial system. We have to have it. It's in Moses, as I said. It's in Aaron as he runs into the mist and stops the plague. We have to have a mediator. Why do we have to have a mediator between us and God the Father? Father. Now, by the way, after his crucifixion, the curtain is torn down, right? We can now enter into the throne room. It's clearly a protective stance, isn't it? As well as a mediator stance. Why do we need both? God the Son is standing between us and God the Father, and he says so. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. There's no other way, there's no other truth, there's no other life. But me, I'm the one, the only truth, the only way, the only life. No one comes to the Father except through me, he says. John 14, 6. Mediatorial, high priest, and protective. And you've got to add to that John 7, 6, 5. And he said, therefore, this Christ says this, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been given to him by my Father. So there you got it on both sides. You can't get to the Father unless you go through Christ. You can't get to, the, you can't get to Christ unless the Father gives it to you to get to him. That's called the called of Jesus Christ, Romans 1, 6. So we've got to work our way through John 7, 6, 5, John 14, 6, Romans 1, 6, and Romans 1, 16. It is the omnipotence of God to salvation for everyone who believes, the power of God. That's called the call of Jesus Christ. Understanding how all of that fits together leads you to the understanding of the will of God. And that, of course, once you have an idea of how the will of God works, where are you in the Bible? That's right, you're at Gethsemane. Where Christ says to the Father, not as I will, but as you will. Matthew 26, 39. And you know that's Genesis 15. And you understand how that fits together, I hope. If you don't, come see me. I'll explain it in no less than, what, a year. Or better. I'll do better, I hope. And Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. So what's the obvious question? If God is not willing that any should perish, why do any perish? shouldn't be possible to perish. But it is possible to perish, but yet he's unwilling. So how do I explain that? How do I explain it? You all yell back at me, what? Genesis 15, that's right. So, those are the very hard, not for the simple lovers, Proverbs one twenty two, not for the easily deceived, Romans 16.18. Those are the questions for those who want to seek wisdom, for those who wish to be wise. Obviously, the most complex in all that I read today, though, is the just shall live by faith. Because you've got to define questions, you've got to define things now. Who are the just? What is the definition of live? Does Paul mean what we're doing right now? No. The just shall have eternal life by faith. How does faith come to be? 
Paul intends to prove. This is the great thesis statement of the book of Romans. He intends to prove it. This is where, you know, you're taught in school. Your introduction, and then your thesis, and then your body, then your conclusion. This is his thesis statement. The just shall live by faith. That is absolutely foreign to everyone who read it at the time. Because they believed it was possible to earn your own salvation. He's saying, life comes from the resurrected, the living, the redeemed, the righteous shall be given eternal life by faith. And he intends to prove it. The just shall live by faith. It's, as I said, the great thesis statement of his life. What exactly does it mean? And he goes back and begins the book of Romans, and now it's a proof. And he starts where? Where does he start? Abraham, Genesis 15, that's where he starts. Understanding how to prove that the just shall live by faith. Being able to prove it to others. Understanding, Genesis 15, the just shall live by faith. That's your Father's Day. That's what you've got to be able to do. You've got to prove it to your kids. You've got to prove it to others. Travis. It's got Mabel. I can barely spell Mabel. M-A-B-E-L-L-E. I had to look, make sure. He's got Mabel and he's got Chloe. And he's going to be held accountable to prove to those two kids the just shall live by faith. I think he's up to the task. And if you do that, your faith is spoken of throughout the world. And then what happens? What happens? The world isn't happy. So you're not going to get a prize. You're going to get a beating. That's how it works. Okay, I'm going to answer one question. Did I answer more than one question? Yeah, I actually had a pretty good day for me. And here it is. As a musician comes forward, we're kind of down a little bit in the band. We have more than one musician. I'm being funny. Greek versus barbarian. What separated them to Paul? Why did he call some Greeks and some barbarians? Because the Greeks were known for something. What were the Greeks known for at the time of Paul? They were the greatest culture of all. They were the greatest thinkers of all of the world. They were known for one thing. Spelled it right that time, didn't I? Philosophy. What philosophy were they particularly known for? He called them wise versus the barbarians unwise. And by the way, the Greeks called people barbarians the same way we would call them blatherians. Or blah, 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 blah. See, they, bar, 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 bar. They would listen to the people that they considered uneducated, and that's what they would hear. Bar, 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 bar. Blah, 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 blah. Totally ignorant. So they called them barbarians because they had no understanding of anything. They were considered by the Greeks to be fools, all of them. No complex understanding. Certainly no philosophy. What philosophy did the Greeks have? What philosophy did they promote? Substance dualism. So, there you go. Get on the Internet tonight. And start arguing your substance dualism. If you can't argue it, then what are you? You're a bar, 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 blah, 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 blabian. Or you have some wisdom. Now, he doesn't say they're saved. 
But he said they were wise because they understood there was a difference between the mind and the body. They knew. And they considered everybody who didn't have that worked out to be profoundly dumb. I had a, an older woman talk to me this week um, who said this to me. She's in her 70s, and she said, I cannot get my brain to do what I ask. And I said to her, wonderfully said, wonderfully said, I repeat it for you, I cannot get my brain to do what I want. She is not a physical mass. She is not her brain. She is not her body. She is her mind. And she could not get her body. The supernatural could not get the natural. The immaterial could not get the material. The non-physical could not get the physical to do what it wanted. Perfectly said. You have to be able to prove it. Otherwise, you are a barbarian. Sorry. Let's rise. Not really. It's a fake sorry. Let's uh, rise and be dismissed. Our last song is The End to Your Name on page 14. <laughs>